Free speech is not the norm, and even in a country that explicitly protects speech in its foundational documents, censorship can still creep into our lives in unexpected ways. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. We're listening to American jazz saxophonist Eddie Harris's Free Speech off his 1969 album of the same name. It's election night, and we're sharing another episode in our series, The Way of Neoliberalism, Selling Censorship. It's about the current cultural environment that dominates our society, politics, and our interactions with each other. Tonight, we're speaking with David Bromwich, Sterling Professor of English at Yale University and author of a recent article in the London Review of Books called What Are We Allowed to Say? In it, he reminds readers that a society without censorship is not the historical norm and cautions us to watch for the new ways in which open dialogue is being cut down and self-censorship promoted. We start this segment with definitions. John Stuart Mill and the concept of free speech as simply a proscription against censorship and move into ideas about how a society of manners can disapprove of undesirable speech while still allowing it to be free. One paradox of note is that built into the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is an inherent tension in protecting one's right to be dogmatic and censorious in one's religious beliefs and the enshrinement of the right to be critical of those very institutions and beliefs, and in a way, creating the foundation for the Orwellian concept of doublethink. And now, Selling Censorship, with David Bromwich, on Interchange. David Bromwich, welcome to Interchange. Good to be here. So let's um, begin with definitions. What is free speech, I guess? What is free? What is speech? How do they go together? Well, I would take the best definition I know from Chapter 2 of uh, John Stuart Mill's book on liberty, a liberty of thought and discussion, which holds that in a society that wants to be progressive, that is to say, wants to see its knowledge advance and wants to see the cause of enlightenment um, grow stronger and the cause of superstition weaker, that in that sort of society, uh, people should be free to express any opinions they have that do not threaten uh, with physical harm other persons or the institutions of the society. And it's understood that very few uh, kinds of speech could actually do that. Um, in fact, possibly none. That is to say, we have uh, sanctions by law against acts that uh, are harmful to other people. And there's no doubt that speech, by being persuasive, can lead to actions that are destructive. But we prosecute people for the acts, not for the speech, partly because speech is inventive, creative, distorting, um, warped, mixed in its qualities, uh, always uncertain of itself, even when it seems certain, um, likely to be modified, and so on. One of the things it's modified by is the answers of other speakers. Mm -hmm. You don't shut that down with doctrine or shut it down by coercive force. Uh, you let the back and forth of discussion do what it can do. That's not to say all discussion is good or all discussion advances a good cause, but censorship is worse than anything that can happen merely through the free exchange of words. Hmm. It seems to me that this is um, perhaps clearly a, 
a political understanding. So it sounds like there's an absolute sense to this. There's obviously some gray area there. You mentioned uh, harming institutions, I think. Um, you know, physical harm makes sense. Um, and, but You're harming an institution when you, uh, for instance, prevent people from having their day in court by, hmm. by uh, causing a crowd to uh, stand in the way of them. I don't know what the exact position ought to be about the speaker who incites a crowd to prevent lawyers from entering a court, for example. Mm -hmm. But laws against, and I believe they exist, though no lawyer myself, incitement, not just incitement to riot, but incitement to illegal acts, um, do exist. They're similar to laws that govern the inconvenience of a public nuisance and so on. So, you know, somebody who is speaking through a megaphone uh, that person's, uh, you could say, exercising his right of speech, but there are other laws that prevent him from speaking. Um, he, you know, he may be saying things that are harmless, or he may be, you know, you know, blaring out some very loud music that nobody wants to hear, but he can't do it. Even though it's expression, he can't do it because he's a public nuisance. Hmm. So we're, we're approaching the question of uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing when Radio Rahim brings his music into Sal's pizzeria. still, I think, is maybe we're confusing things by using the word free. I don't like the, the, um, the looseness of the sound of the words free speech. Mm -hmm. And partly, I don't know, for whatever parsimony of understanding that seems to me uh, clearer and sharper to my way of thinking, I prefer to say that it is censorship that we oppose, mm -hmm. that then there's something easily defined called free speech, which we're encouraging. You're not encouraging any kind of speech. You just refuse to forbid it because the people who want to exercise the power of censorship are always more suspect in your eyes than anything wrong you think might happen from someone speaking. Right. So you open the essay that, that we came here to talk about, uh, What Are We Allowed to Say? That was in the London Review of Books, September 22nd of this year. Uh, you open that by saying that free speech is an aberration. Can you just expand on that a little bit? I only meant that free speech developed late in predominantly North Atlantic societies. Um, you know, it's, it's there as a possibility in ancient Greece, um, and you could say 
the, uh, the, the linguistic work of the tribunes of the people in ancient Rome, but the free speech that we are used to referring to has its beginning in the Reformation and, you know, reaches its high point with the debates among the levelers during the uh, Puritan Revolution in England and then afterwards uh, with the Puritans who didn't want to be in the middle of a civil war, some of their number coming to America and some of them, like Roger Williams, uh, having such, uh, what to call it, anti-establishment views of religion that freedom Mm -hmm. gets a great start in the state of Rhode Island and then still others of those relatively early Americans have the same strong feelings about the press, the freedom of the press. Um, When the people have their voice, their voice will be heard. It will be heard in representative government. It will also be heard in a press. And it comes to be called the free press. But what we, I suppose, should mean by it is printed and spoken words that are not subject to deletion by censorship. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange. Our show is Selling Censorship on the aberrant idea of free speech. And our guest is David Bromwich, author of the recent London Review of Books essay, What Are We Allowed to Say? We're again finding our way into that uh, distinction between how a a non-governmental, non-powerful, single person can speak uh, not limited by that governmental body or power, etc. So we can't have free speech without a government who might restrict it. Uh, we can't have free speech without a government. <laughs> well, when do we have problems with speech prior to having governments? In the sense that with these are concept, these are governmental concepts in some sense, aren't they? They're institutional concepts. I don't have this conversation unless I'm sort of within a mechanism that if I do speak in a way to harm, I have to have something that could harm me back to, to limit that speech. So, yep. in, in, a, in a non-governmental world, that is to say, let us posit a world of peaceful anarchy. Yeah. Um, and by anarchy, I just mean sure, I get you. absence of government. Mm-hmm. That world, anyone can say anything until somebody strong decides that you can't say it. Right. And that strong person then becomes the one man or one woman censor. Um, and you have, going back to the you know, state of nature theorists and the reasons for there being some sort of social compact, um, you have a reason for instituting a government in order to protect you from the strong person who prevents you from speaking and eventually prevents you from having representation in government. So, yeah, the government um, sets the norms, which in a constitutional democracy like ours are norms that pretty much forbid censorship and uh, therefore allow everyone to speak. But you're right that there are lots of inequalities. Um, for entry into speech, you have, you have to know how to speak. That's, that's one sort of um, weakness that makes your speech less than fully equal. If you, you know, grew up in a household where there were no newspapers, no books, and no, what shall we say, public radio, um, then you'll be at a disadvantage in discussing political issues. Suppose that all you listen to is Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly, and you get into a discussion with people who have you know, 12 or 24 better sources of information than that, you will feel that, you, that your speech is not quite equal and therefore not quite free. But those inequalities are something... Uh, that the First Amendment can't begin to write. Right. Um, and when I said 
free speech is an aberration. Maybe I left that hanging too much. All I mean is the majority of societies that we know about instituted among humankind um, have not been characterized by free speech. Uh, it's relatively an exception. And so I meant to, I meant to, to make that clear as a, so to speak, in the large scope of human history, a minority cause, but a minority cause that I support. Uh, let's let's move through the essay a little bit. You, as you mentioned, Levy uh, earlier, uh, you begin with uh, his book Blasphemy, and you start there with, I guess that's a, a censorship uh, space that you begin in. Then to walk us from censorship forward. Well, blasphemy is forbidden expressly by this or that religion, mm-hmm. and so that's where an absolute line is drawn. You can't say this. It insults our creed and threatens uh, how can you threaten somebody's god you can fall so foul of the creed that you yourself um become a forbidden person and that's what blasphemy indicates it draws that line and until you get to very very refined forms of protestantism religions are not uh paragons of tolerance <laughs> well it's uh, you know as you start there uh, you call into question that particular aspect right in that first amendment we have the freedom to practice religion and not have any law uh, respecting it but at the same time it's one of those difficult tensions in the society where you might say that uh, the religion creates you know as a censorship uh, within the body of a political community that supports a free expression. Let me make sure I, that, that I've followed your drift. Somebody can, can be a citizen of a uh, country, uh, as, say, the United States, but at the same time be the member of a synagogue, uh, church, or mosque, which, which enforces certain prohibitions. Mm-hmm. Therefore, actions or forms of speech that are allowed in the society will be forbidden within the church, temple, mosque. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Right. <laughs> yeah. so, so that's a contradiction. And, right. and at that point, um, since there is no uh, uh, law respecting an establishment of religion, you know, you, no more can you enforce laws within a temple, church, or whatever um, about what it should do to its members, then you can force anybody to be a member of that church. Mm-hmm. So it's parallel somewhat to the question about the guy bringing in a boombox um, to a pizza joint where that sort of music isn't welcome. Um, the only price he pays for bringing in the wrong music is that people won't like him there. Um, well, the price you pay if you're the member of a, a church or a mosque, the more orthodox, the higher and faster you pay the price. Mm-hmm. Um, is to be shunned, excommunicated, excluded, whatever the word is, by that um, religious uh, place. You lose your place there, and the society can't protect you from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the society can allow you to say anything you like against this or that religion, as long as it's not under the category of incitement and so on, um, outside the church. Uh, so. You're choosing your space, and American society has set religion as something apart, something we allow people free worship in, but we do not interfere with uh, as the state. And so as citizens, they, they have a great deal more freedom to say whatever they please about religion or any other subject than they're likely to have within their own religious uh, right. 
uh, group. What's the interesting dilemma? Um, you know, how how do I know what I think until I see what I say or see what I write? You know, or you have to be able to to speak in a sense, right? To to think whether it's um, yes. uh, an internal dialogue with yourself or monologue or whatever it is you're doing with yourself. Um, and there is there is some quality of mind uh, which requires interaction between thought and speech, which makes one hard to conceive of without the presence of the other. Right. Well, uh, and I, I draw that right now in, in, the, in the conversation after we just talked about religion and, and probably any other dogmatic institution, right, which limits your access to other ways of seeing or thinking or knowing about the world and how you express that relationship. So as your texts and ideas are limited, so shall be your thinking. Not exactly. I think I wouldn't rule out instinct. <laughs> it's something, there's just a spark in us that when we read a certain sequence of words and are expected to have a certain reaction to it, says no. Mm-hmm. So questions can arise, I think, just from some sort of imaginative or mental activity in response to text, which something in us opposes. But you're no doubt correct that the more contrary, the more um, contradictory, the more um, multiple, plural, um, conflicting opinions you're allowed to hear, uh, the more stimulus to thought occurs. There can be almost too much of that. (laughs) And I think education um, has an interesting uh, economy it should have to observe in, you know, giving uh, students rival points of view, but not you know, with such reckless abandon that students come to think, oh, well, everybody has a point of view, and I guess they're all sort of right, and there's no point in entering into this. It's time for a break. You're listening to Not Ready to Make Nice by the Dixie Chicks. At a concert in London in 2003, lead singer Natalie Maines spoke out against a U.S. invasion of Iraq and President George W. Bush, saying... We don't want this war, this violence, and we're ashamed that the President of the United States is from Texas. An immediate backlash ensued and the group was effectively silenced and commercially damaged. This song, from their 2006 album, Taking the Long Way, is a direct response to that situation. More on censorship with David Bromwich, Sterling Professor of English at Yale, when Interchange returns. You 
Welcome back to a special election night interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We're speaking with David Bromwich, author of What Are We Allowed to Say? A recent article in the London Review of Books about free speech and censorship. At the end of our last segment, we discussed the tensions between the freedom of religious communities to enforce speech codes in the form of prohibitions against blasphemy, while also being part of a larger free society where dialogue and a contest of ideas develops mindful citizens. Now, that discussion moves to modernity, with new forces hampering opposing ideas from reaching us and shutting down speech that might insult or simply make us feel momentarily awkward. The homogenizing filter of social media and the concept of and enforcement against so-called microaggressions. What are we allowed to say if we may accidentally offend someone at any moment? And through the bureaucratization of manners and microaggressions, that momentary offense is enough to end any dialogue. And what is worth saying if all the voices in our personal little algorithmically chosen virtual communities are all saying the same thing? Well, you, you jumped uh, further there into, uh, I guess, the Miltonic. Uh, you, you quote Milton in your piece. I'm not going to pretend to pronounce the work that you quote from. Ariapagitica. Thank you. Um, the idea of contraries is key to that. Yeah, well, Milton in a great passage of that tract against licensing. Um, again, it's, a, it's against censorship rather than quite in favor of anything we could loosely call free speech. Mm-hmm. But Milton says, we bring not innocence into the world, we bring impurity much rather, and that it is by contest with what is contrary, um, that we learn who we are as judges of right and wrong, and learn to understand how complex is the choice one faces of action and choice of commitment in performing any deed. And one learns also by that process, a process of thought, and commitment and action, um, and one learns by one's mistakes. One learns by one's wrongs, or to use Milton's word, sins, um, what it is to be a thinking and responsible being. You, you come to modify yourself in relation not only to the right answers you have given, but the wrong answers that you've learned from. And that's how within a, a single mind, as he imagines it, absence of censorship creates the possibility of a conscience that has integrity. Whereas under a regime of censorship, all you will be given are weak, docile, and irresponsible persons who can hardly even be called individuals. Hmm. Well, you pair that wonderfully, too, though, with our, our current technological narrowness in terms of our being members of particular friendship groups on our our Facebook uh, or our Instagram or whatnot, and and how, in some sense, that's not a relationship of contraries. Yes, I'm, uh, you know, the 500th person to make this point. <laughs> uh, it's true, and it's scary. Uh, people listen to their own kind. Um, I try to do it less uh, than some. Um, and I listen to, you know, the Fox hosts as I drive into school and as I drive back to school, and you learn the way these people think, and you're not too surprised by some of the, uh, what to say, um, fixes that we've landed ourselves in this year. But the, um, I think the preponderance of people want agreeable experiences. Look at the expression on the faces of people who are doing their um, smartphones or emails and stuff online. There's a kind of they're bathed in a half smile quite a lot of 
the time. There's a feeling of vague satisfaction, and you're in contact with the people you're used to. And no, there's the um, the technological hyperactivity that we've grown used to just over the last decade, though it's increased the opportunities for gaining information and exposing yourself to expressive and didactic <laughs> stimuli of all sorts, it has actually narrowed people's habits. They, you know, intensify their concentration on the things they want to hear. Right. You call this uh, the soft despotism of social media. Yeah, well, soft despotism is an idea that comes up in Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America, but the um, it's a despotism of opinion. You mm-hmm. hear something said again and again and again, and you come to feel that's the only thing to be said on the subject. So, for example, I mean, in the academic environment that I'm in, um, you get an idea which seems to me quite a bad and silly idea. The idea that there is a, a sort of infraction that can, can be, be committed by one person against another that's called a microaggression. Uh, a microaggression pretty well maps onto what George uh, Orwell called thought crime. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a thought crime that is legible to someone else. So you, I say to someone uh, who is East Asian, and visibly so, um, when she speaks her first few sentences to me, I say, where are you from? Right. That's a microaggression right. in the language of our academic time, because I could easily be making her feel unwelcome, mm-hmm. even though it might not be meant that way. Yet I might be quite curious because I'm listening to her accent and wondering, is she from South Korea or from North Korea? Because I have quite a lot of friends from both places, but she seems something in between. I could mean that, just curious small talk. But anyway, if it's read as something unwelcoming or even awkward making, it's called a microaggression, and there are parties uh, within the academy now, uh, and I, I dare say in the secondary schools too, who want to institute programs teaching students how to be so sensitive that they'll never commit this sort of thing. Right. I think that is to discipline language and discipline human exchanges so much that you reduce them almost to something of the quality of uh, really inferior mammals or even rodents. <laughs> <laughs> It's too humbling, it's too modest, it just pairs down too much. But, you know, once you get the worry about um, people not liking an unwelcome stimulus, it can lead to places like this. Lots of other causes contribute. The, the therapeutic culture, which is especially intense in academic life these days, but which is all over American culture too, it's on reality TV in its way, um, I think that contributes to it where everyone feels almost an obligation to react to everything that's said. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything becomes potentially important. And I think in this (laughs) this climate of micro-scrutiny, of micro-speech, I don't know. I'm I'm rather at a loss. People like Milton, John Stuart Mill, the American founders, just didn't imagine a situation this paltry. Hmm. The thing that you point out, too, is that this creates the the harm comes in the offense or the I guess the offended party would sort of have the ability to say this is what is this is what is wrong. This is what. Yeah. Automatic uh, uh, in enforcement of these protocols. Um, if somebody feels that something has been done to him or her by speech, speech that has the quality of action that makes you feel not at home or whatever, that can't be contested. Mm-hmm. There is no 
uh, what shall we call it, detached, impartial, objective, third-person standpoint that anyone is advised to adopt, saying, what would be the reasonable reaction to what was said? There's no reasonable person standard. There's just the subjective emotional response of the person who felt whatever, felt, felt that things were made awkward and that was bad for me. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange. Our show is Selling Censorship on the aberrant idea of free speech. And our guest is David Bromwich, author of the recent London Review of Books essay, What Are We Allowed to Say? Right. Insult, then, is um, illegal in some sense, right? As you move into these ideas that these are ways in which we put uh, constraints on how we are relating to each other, then the idea of the insult and who can be insulted is gets more and more interesting as well, I suppose, right? How is one able to be insulted? How is one able to be offended? Oh, yeah. You can't imagine it in a culture that has any you know, energy of contestation at all. I mean, think of some of the most famous insults, unmannerly or mannerly, that uh, American uh, lawmaker, I forget who it was, but it was a Southerner who said to one of his colleagues on the Senate floor, you're the east side of a jackass looking west. (laughs) That's insulting. Oh, my God, I'm insulting it. You know what? You know, my grandmother came from China or something, so you're imputing her easternhood. Or think of... um, you know, Whistler saying to Oscar Wilde when Oscar Wilde supposed to have said to James McDeal Whistler, I wish I had said that. And Whistler said, you will, Oscar, you will. And you know, imagine Oscar Wilde, instead of realizing that he'd been one-upped on one of the rare occasions when that was possible, imagine Oscar Wilde saying, oh my God, I'm insulted, um, and my feelings are hurt, and I would like to take you to sensitivity training. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just uh, this, things like this are actually happening right. um, among young people who have been brought to believe that um, unexpected and unwelcome stimulus is a trespass against their sensibilities and can harm them almost physically as individuals. This, this seems to be your primary point, right? So you, you, about halfway through the article, you say it's time to explain yourself, and you point to that you know, speech as thought, and it's a, a, a physical necessity in some sense, right? And, well, and I, don't, I wouldn't claim that for all people, but I think that it, it becomes um, something of great value, the freedom to speak your mind, to many people at unpredictable times. Mm-hmm. To some people, let's call them, you know, inveterate or born dissidents, somebody like Tom Paine, for example. Yeah, for, for him and for Milton, too, it did seem a physical necessity. Mm-hmm. And those persons of strong conviction are voices you don't want to shut up because they represent, in some ways, what is most mentally alive in humankind. Hmm. Well, I, I, I point to this uh, as much as anything else because it's a, a habit of my own to not necessarily uh, think very well uh, if I'm not speaking. Um, I tend to work through my own ideas or how I uh, approach uh, another person or a conversation or an idea that we're talking about. It takes me a while to get to the point that I might settle on or f- for the moment. And I may say seven different things that aren't quite right or that may be not nice sometimes also in an attempt to get to that place where I might end up in, in a good place, I suppose, in my thinking. But I tend to do that out loud frequently. So um, it would be a very, uh, I would I'd be full of landmines myself, be walking all around myself in terms of trying to not 
say things I shouldn't say, and then I would always be constraining myself. Yeah, and you make a good point about manners this way, that um, by institutionalizing the corrective procedures against unwelcome speech, we impede the natural interaction between people of different sorts and people of different opinions, which can lead to genuine understanding or at least genuine respect. That is to say, when you said, well, I might have said something wrong, mm -hmm. and it takes me several times. Well, in an ordinary human interaction, what would happen then? You said something wrong, someone says to you, you know, I take that amiss, and here's why. Another person explains, and you say, oh, you know, I realize that was, that was um, a mistake of mine. I meant to say it this way. This is my idea more nearly. Or you say, oh, that's interesting. I really didn't know that. Ignorant me. I'm never going to think that again, and mm -hmm. so on. And you continue a conversation with that person. Well, now by bureaucratizing um, the censorious body that is asked to inquire into the first transaction when the person said he spoke unwelcome words, you prevent all the subsequent interaction between the people, and it's all handed up to the big boys on top. You decide. Tell me whether this was really a violation and what the punishment should be. And so the ordinary process of what can be good in socialization among young people in particular is curtailed, is cut short. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, a, at least as I see it happening and hear it reported about um, in colleges and universities, um, that's a, a very unfortunate development because people only in some sense learn, um, well, uh, learn how to be not just decent to each other, but respectful while disagreeing. It's something you learn by having it happen. Hmm. Well, you again, you point to how this is kind of happening in the way that we're being raised on social media that does the same kind of thing. I think you have a, a pretty good phrase in here, a new, new keenness of censorious distrust. And this idea that the community itself that we belong to already sort of inhibits us or creates the thought crime space. Uh, that we will not broach in order to not lose our our community, in order to not offend. Yeah. Well, that's the greatest observable symptom of this change mm -hmm. um, of manners from the bureaucratization of prosecution of insults or infractions or microaggressions and whatnot. The greatest change you see, um, and I'll say I see it especially among, among younger people, is uh, reluctance to talk. It's just they're well advised not to say too much that might be good. Right. A lot of them walk around right. with earbuds in their ear and a smartphone facing them, some with one or the other. But so there's there's lots who seal themselves off as they're going from one place to another yeah. day. Yeah. Seal themselves off from any accidental human contact. You know, it it, it does uh, it does go even further and in, inhibit the ability to speak and and uh, also dampen the desire. So let's say race relations are thought to be very important. Since the 1960s, they've been much talked about, talked about maybe too promiscuously, too recklessly by too many voices. But now I think the sense is it would be so easy to say the wrong thing that particularly if you are not a person of color, um, and, in, and in colleges and universities, they are the people who are likeliest to be wrong-footed by saying the wrong thing. Um, you know what? And then I'll just say nothing. I'm not, why should I go there? Right. Why should I talk about any of that stuff? And that's, to call it by its name, that's self-censorship. 
I think it takes place across a range of subjects, but that's a prominent one. It's time for another break. You're listening to Devo's Freedom of Choice. More with David Bromwich on selling censorship when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to our election night interchange. Tonight we're talking about free speech in our series, The Way of Neoliberalism, Selling Censorship, with David Bromwich, Yale professor of English and author of a recent London Review of Books article, What Are We Allowed to Say? In our last segment, we looked at how the goals of free speech and free minds are hampered by the disintegration of a common space of ideas into innumerable little isolated digital communities of self-identity crafted by the filters of social media to avoid challenging one's notions of the world. We become further fenced off from the possibility of any unpleasant or challenging encounters in the real world by a combination of technological isolation, the concept of microaggressions, and the ensuing self-censorship. Now, the larger political consequences of living in these infinitely divisible, gated communities of culture and ideology come to bear in our government and this election. Utter paralysis on the national level, because we can find no consensus, because there's no more common ground, because there is no more real dialogue. From our national nightmare of an election, through the story of UC Berkeley's anti-speech changes in the 50 years since the impassioned speech of Mario Savio and the Berkeley free speech movement in 1964, to the recent controversy in Bloomington North High School over students brandishing the Confederate flag and its resolution, the banning of all such displays, which Bromwich feels will only result in more self-righteous isolation on both sides and probably litigation. We see the consequences of choosing comfort over genuine, albeit sometimes discordant, dialogue. If we talk about how uh, ideas are given to us or sort of shoved into the the public space that we, I guess, come across in some sense, we have that I, what is called a cognitive infiltration. I think this is you know, this is something that we have to think about in a space where we're talking about free speech and trying to understand how it is we come to speak our own mind if what we're being inundated with, I suppose, are many, many um, ideas that are intended 
to encourage us to have particular ways of thinking and acting. So cognitive infiltration, I think the nudge idea from, and this is Cass Sunstein again. Um, so this calls into question the idea of choice to me frequently um, and how it is that I'm supposed to approach freedom if I live in a world, if I live in this particular world with my smartphone and my internet and, and things of this nature. Well, you're defining the mediated uh, mm-hmm. in, environment, uh, some of it with a lot of money behind the individual samples of the media, um, and the, the, you know, the impact they can have on people. You're defining that over against an idea of quite choosing for yourself, which is to say autonomy, giving the law to yourself about what you choose. And that's an ideal picture of freedom, which very little uh, in human life is going to come up to. Um, but the, the problem we were talking about before is about, there's two things at work here. One is the way people are bombarded by possible um, influences that they could choose to have, and therefore probably confused initially at some moment. Who knows? It happens early now. Maybe at the age of nine, you're confused about what you ought to pick out of all those. But people settle on one emphasis if they're politically inclined or you know, dogmatic in some way. They settle on, you know, a few different sources that all converge on a single point of view, and then they become propagandized. They become, you know, narrow-minded people subject to that one habit of thought. This has always happened, of course. I mean, this has happened to the readers of party newspapers, Mm -hmm. happened to to, you know, the adherents of a single religious view who are attached to the opinions of one preacher. There's no way to stop it. Um, but the trouble I think we're facing is that the effects of people being the farthest thing away from autonomous, the effects of that are, are now um, uh, being felt as a kind of social ill on a very large scale. It's hard to put together a coherent, um, rational majority opinion on quite a few questions because the minority is itself so recalcitrant, so intractable, so dogmatic. And, um, of course, uh, getting eventually rational majorities on at least a great many questions is an absolute necessity for the survival of a a society that depends on, you know, the will of the people and the expression of their opinions. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we're supposed to be thinking that the market will tell us what to do anymore. I just think that this is part of the problem is that we're, as, you, as you're explaining it, as the idea that uh, we have big things that need to be taken care of or we have to address real issues, uh, this is exactly the problem of these, these sort of small, uh, narrow, uh, constant ideas that, are, that we are, I, I suppose, chosen to bombard ourselves with or chosen to be, to be seeing, um, that we'll not have the capacity or the ability to be uh, able to come together in particular ways to make those those majority decisions. Um, it seems to me, as we continue to sort of splinter and distract ourselves, that the the way that we're governed, the way that we can be governed, the way that things happen, often happen in ways that we can't quite grasp or understand, and they, they go on um, sort of underneath or behind or, you know, all these other, these uh, for lack of a better term, I guess, uh, the theater that we are, we're confronted with in this political space. It, you know, it, it is true. Uh, the diagnosis has been made as long ago as a generation ago that 
something about the you know endlessly divisible pluralism of American political culture and just American culture has prevented um, the most enlightened kind of representative government from making as much headway as it should have in the last few years. Uh, I don't know. It's so hard to say. Uh, I do think that the, you know, the split up of the number of resources people use to get their news or from which to derive their opinions has, has made things much harder. It was easier when you had, you know, just a few major networks and a few major newspapers. And if you wanted information, most people got it from those places or their right. derivatives. Well, there seemed to be a way to get consensus then. As you say, there were fewer ideas, fewer uh, things that you had to consent to. All right. <laughs> right. That understanding of party politics, which is the politics of opposition and conflict, but as, it, as so to speak, restrained conflict, that seems to be harder to get now. And what's also harder is for us to have the emergence of political figures who seem active and persuasive in a straightforward way that allows people to identify them, you know, uh, with with this or that cause. Well, you have, you walked into politics here, and so we are, you know, we have two, uh, I guess our candidates for president don't necessarily, well, let's just say they're, they seem to be the most divisive uh, candidates we've had in some time. They've had that effect. Uh, One of them is unprecedented. Um, There has never been anybody uh, that I know of uh, running for office as the candidate of a major party. There's never been anybody before like Donald Trump. But, you know, the other candidate, Hillary Clinton, certainly is a person with uh, less charismatic and persuasive political ability on the major stage uh, than uh, most people we've seen from the major parties. And divisive because they're both bringing out the maximum number of scandals about each other. Um <laughs> I mean, I I have in mind the possibility of, you know, uh, persuasive and maybe even charismatic political figure in representative government who wins people over uh, to a certain point of view and gets them to change their minds on certain issues. Now, it's, it's hard to know for sure that that has ever happened, but I take it that the post-constitutional um, leaders that most Americans agree on as being the greatest presidents, uh, Lincoln and Roosevelt, are appreciated for just this quality. There was something about their coherence, something about their um, persuasiveness, and a certain kind of um, unified impression that they made as speakers and as politicians that stood for a cause people knew. And uh, Barack Obama was a very different kind of leader. He played so many roles, uh, you know, grief counselor, wise man, um, rock star, comedian, um, that he was very hard hard to place. And I think these were our eight years of suspense while the forces of disunity uh, got stronger and stronger. And, you know, what's, what's going to follow is going to be much more challenging than anything we've recently seen. But I, I don't know that um, one can do more than hope for the emergence of group of people or maybe two or three uh, national-sized leaders who have the ability to uh, bring people back to, 
well, you use the word consensus, something closer to a consensus, at least about how things ought to be done in politics. And we're nowhere near that now. And I, I, I blame, among others, the forces we've been talking about. But now that we're into politics, we would have to name much larger forces. <laughs> I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange. Our show is Selling Censorship on the aberrant idea of free speech. And our guest is David Bromwich, author of the recent London Review of Books essay, What Are We Allowed to Say? Before we wrap this up, I didn't want to leave out uh, a couple of things. One in particular was the Berkeley free speech movement, only because I have to play that clip of Mario Savio, right? Uh, It's such a a powerful uh, speech. You want to talk about that a little bit? I listened to it when I found the seven-minute version, the whole speech Mm -hmm. that Savio delivered on the steps of Sproul Hall uh, toward the end of the uh, fall term, I guess it was, 1964. We were told the following. If President Kerr actually tried to get something more liberal out of the regions in his telephone conversations, why didn't he make some public statement to that effect? And the answer we received from a well-meaning liberal was the following. He said... Would you ever imagine the manager of a firm making a statement publicly in opposition to his board of directors? That's the answer. I ask you to consider, if this is a firm, and if the board of regents are the board of directors, and if President Kerr, in fact, is the manager, then I tell you something, the faculty are a bunch of employees, and we're the raw materials. But we're a bunch of raw materials that don't mean to be have any process upon us, don't mean to be made into any product, don't mean, don't mean to end up being bought by some clients of the university, be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. Um, it's the speech where he uses the uh, metaphor about you know throwing yourself on the machine when things become intolerable, um, and when you find that uh, you know the customary forms of censorship on free speech uh, limit your uh, ability to speak to friends. Uh, about the subjects that matter to you. The subjects then that most mattered to him were civil rights and the Vietnam War. In fact, speech on those subjects uh, was not prohibited, but bringing speakers to a certain place that was on the campus was prohibited from an ancient campus rule that the authorities didn't want to abandon. So Mario Savio, uh, then a uh, senior, I think, undergraduate studying philosophy was the articulate leader of this movement that made it possible for um, political viewpoints of all sorts to be expressed anywhere on campus at the University of California at Berkeley. And I cite against that a a letter from the chancellor of uh, UC Berkeley um, a couple of years ago. On the 50th anniversary. 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm.
you know, energetic political debate. The reason why that sort of scabrous, um, disgusting, um, offensive insult very seldom occurs is you lose your power to persuade when you do it. Mm -hmm. You just lose it. If you imagine that the goal of political argument might be persuasion, you're not going to persuade anybody who's partly on the other side by name-calling against the other side. So again, as with the guy who comes into the uh, pizza joint with the radio, the price you pay is the price of manners. You're not going to convince anyone if you act like that. But for university authorities or any other sort of authority to say, we're going to make you pay a higher price than that. We want the kind of speech you might think of making to be excluded at the outset. That's crazy. That's an invitation to self-censorship, which leads away from political argument. Well, the the Sabio speech, again, is is really a powerful one. And what's interesting is he kind of uses a lot of Thoreau in that particular speech. The lever of government, yeah, which he's going to go ahead and throw his body on, where Thoreau's going to say, you know, if, if government has its own lever, you're, you might as well walk away, walk away from that fight. But Sabio's going to throw himself on it. Well, and one of the things that have been discouraged by speech codes is the is I, what I would call, I think, the right description of it, impassioned speech. Right. You shouldn't. It really means you shouldn't speak too loud. Yeah. Don't get excited. Energetically, right. don't get excited. You don't rouse emotion. Well, what on earth is persuasion except working partly through people's emotions as well as their thoughts? Hmm. Well, let's let's end with the the thing that you and I don't quite know what to say about. Uh, we had recently a in one of our high schools, students brought Confederate flags into school and wore them as capes. Um, in class, I suppose, in between classes. And, of course, this was met with, you know, an immediate, I guess, uh, actually it was pretty immediate action by the school officials to ban the Confederate flag in school. Um, the the kids, or I guess, who brought the flags in expressed the opinion that if you could fly your LGBTQ flag, why can't we fly our Confederate flag? Yeah. Um, so understand that I'm a Puritan and iconoclast to this extent. I've never worn any insignia of any sort, <laughs> names on shirts or mascots or any. I hate all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That I understand is irrational. In <laughs> modern culture, most people like doing that sort of thing. You know, the, it's a perfect case, it seems to me, uh, of the propriety of government by manners. You, what you would hope for, I understand the school... Uh, the schoolmasters wanting to clean up the problem just by banning the the obnoxious emblem, and obviously to black students, it's a taunt. The, uh, the wearing of the Confederate flag—it's not a physical threat. It shouldn't be misunderstood as a physical threat. Even they probably didn't misunderstand it as that. It's not like burning a cross on on your lawn, but uh, it is—it's—it's—it's uh, uh, it's, it's meant to be a taunt. So the result you would hope for is for students who feel that uh, as an insult, to go up against verbally the students who are wearing the emblem, tell them how, it's, how offensive it is, describe slavery to them, ask them if they really want to be masters whipping their slaves, use the other white students who may be more decent or less interested in merely offending to try to rally support for yourself. And those people wearing the emblems have the emblems shunned. They learn that they are being disapproved of 
by the suffrage of opinion of their own school fellows because what they've done is offensive and disgusting. That can happen. It can even happen in as unruly a setting as a sports team. Somebody is just out of line and is talking such horrible, sexist nonsense that other members of the team say, shut up. I've seen it happen. Mm -hmm. um, you would like it to happen even on more controversial grounds like, like this. As it is, you know, you've got a court case built up. And it's unfortunate. I understand very well the motive, the peacekeeping motives uh, of schoolmasters. But nobody has been led to understand anybody else better, and who knows how the court case comes out. In any case, two parties are left feeling self-righteous and isolated from each other. The students who asked for this to be done by higher authorities, these students shouldn't be allowed to do that, and the students who wear the emblems now think, oh, we're poor persecuted victims. So it's the worst result. Um, but where manners have so deteriorated and people aren't confident of the power of disapproval, they turn to litigation, and this is... A unique, all-purpose American solution for everything. Litigation, our real free speech. <laughs> Regulated speech in the courtroom. <laughs> Very good. Oh. Well, I really appreciate the time. Uh, David Bromwich, thank you for joining me on Interchange on Election Night. Thank you. That's all the time we have for selling censorship, detailing the way our neoliberal technologies, like Facebook, serve to enclose us in a world of pre-approved and anodyne consensus. Thumbs up to our guest, David Bromwich, Sterling Professor of English at Yale University, author most recently of an intellectual biography of Edmund Burke, and Moral Imagination, a collection of essays. We'll close with Freedom Sound by the Jazz Crusaders, off their 1961 debut album of the same name. Next time on Interchange, Selling Happiness, our final episode in our special series, The Way of Neoliberalism. Happiness has become the biggest idea of our age, a new religion dedicated to well-being. Political economist Will Davies shows how this philosophy, first pronounced by Jeremy Bentham in the 1780s, has dominated the political debates that have delivered neoliberalism. From a history of business strategies of how to get the best out of employees to the increased level of surveillance measuring every aspect of our lives, the happiness industry is an essential guide to the marketization of modern life. Get out your hip-high bootstraps because the science of happiness is less a science than a narrative extension of hyper-capitalism. Selling happiness on the next Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer, and executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next right here on your community radio station, WFHB.